Race matters. 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 This episode was recorded on unceded Indigenous land, so I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which this piece was made. I'd also like to pay my respects to all elders past and present. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. In a world of old facts that overthrow blacks, queens in hijabs, queers that get backs. We sit down, kick back, sip on six packs, watch the world burn on telly and think that's how it is. Activism. It's a word that's been thrown around a lot in the past couple of years, but what does it actually mean? Still today, when we talk about activism, we think of people like Angela Davis and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and rightfully so, they've left inspiring legacies. But we don't really keep that same energy for the activists of today, whoever they may be. Maybe that's because we've done away with having activist figureheads, which might be a good thing, because it means you can't kill off a cause by killing its leader. Or maybe we've just got less activism in us. I don't know. But what I do know is that the word activism and being an activist has lost its power. And it's lost its power because it's become appropriated by people who in some cases just have all the wrong intentions. Clout chasing more than anything. But we can't let that distract from the fact that there are still people out there doing active work to make the world a more bearable place to live. And that work is so important and so, so necessary. So I come back to my earlier question. What is activism? What is an activist? And I think of it like this. Every struggle has a heartbeat. When that heartbeat gets too slow, people start to forget and move on. The people that remain are the activists. And I reckon that's a good way of distinguishing between an activist and just a regular Joe who feels a certain type of way about a certain struggle at a certain point in time. No real change has ever been achieved from sitting down and staying quiet. It comes from shaking up institutions and shaking up systems, whether that's from the inside or the outside. It's an uncomfortable experience, but it's an experience that every activist undergoes for the sake of the greater good. That's how it is. So that's what this final episode is about. Activism and showcasing black activists who are doing the work that needs to be done right now in Australia and the UK. The African diaspora would not be where it is had it not been for the activism of our ancestors, and it's going to continue to rely on our activism moving forward. So I hope this episode and the guests I speak to inspire you to get up, get out, and contribute to something bigger than yourself. I'm just here to push limits. Shit scared of heights, but I stay on top of the game. Say I did it. Show young black kids that you can live it. Free your mind with it. Be proud of your pigment. Marcus Garvey once said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin and culture is like a tree without roots. Education is the key to empowerment. And I don't mean education in the academic sense. I don't mean school. I mean education as in an understanding of the world we live in, the people we live with and the systems we live within. The thing about education, though, is that much like everything else in this world, it's very much defined by privilege and inequality. 
access to education and opportunities for knowledge are still restricted by the same systems that have kept their foot on our neck for centuries. So you've got this vicious cycle of education being restricted, but education also being the key to empowering the people to break the cycle. That's why education-based activism and youth empowerment is so important. Now tell me, what's better than one community organiser empowering the youth? Two community organisers empowering the youth. Manira and Reem are two young women from Nam, Melbourne, and while they might not call themselves activists, their work certainly fits the bill. Manira works for the Foundation for Young Australians down in Nam, organising programmes for young people who are trying to get into activism and advocacy. Reem is a community organiser and educator and one of the founders of Kids from the Block, an organisation empowering youth in Melbourne's public housing towers. I am Manira. I'm a Black Muslim, um, Somali woman living, working um, in uh, Nam on Wurundjeri land. And I do some community organising, some community work. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Reem. I also reside in Nam, Melbourne. Um, I am a Black Muslim woman who's of Eritrean descent. Was born and raised and lived here my whole life. Grew up in the public housing estates in Flemington, North Melbourne. And yeah, I guess I'm also a community builder, organiser, um, and my principles are centred on compassion, care, justice, truth, and love. I've always had this sort of tense relationship with that word activism. I think because it never really, I never felt it really truly encapsulated what I do and why I do what I do. Um, and I know it's a term that people have used to describe me and the work I do. I think because as a black Muslim woman, I just do the work because I have to do the work. Like I do it because I grew up in a community where um, I saw so much injustice in the world, but also so much oppression. And I was raised to like, I was raised with this belief that if there was that injustice that, and I was in a position where I could respond to it, that I had to, right? Um, but I just saw myself as like, a person from community doing this work, not necessarily an activist, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I would agree with Reem. I've never identified as an activist. I've never thought of myself as an activist. I also have a really tense relationship with the word activism. I feel like it is sometimes used um, in a way to like elevate the individual um, who obviously is part of a collective and part of a community. Um, and um, I've never really thought of anything that I've, I've done or have um, worked on as something that I'm doing um, on my own. So I think, I think that's why I've like strayed away from the word or have like had this reaction to the word because it feels like it's an individual um it's a term that is about an individual rather than about a person that is working alongside or within a community um yeah I, I definitely see myself as um and I, and this is something that I've come to see myself as I definitely see myself as like a organizer or a community builder 
I think that that's just innate in some of us that like you're incredibly focused on trying to make the world um, what you what you and what your community deserve. And I think that that because there's that um, idea that that would be, you would be doing that in community with other people. You're not um, you're not the lone activist. I think that's so key what you said, like it's not making the world a better place necessarily, it's making the world into something that your community deserves. You see the people you love and you see, you know, your surroundings and you see that they're not being treated right and you just you just know they deserve better and you want to do that. Do you feel that activism, activism for lack of a better term, is a shared or an individual practice and how, how have you engaged in quote-unquote activism in your own right? I mean, I definitely don't think activism is an individual practice. I think it has to be a part of a collective. I don't, I don't think you're working on issues, social issues or issues that impact um, a community or society or whatever else for yourself. I think that that's how activism has been. Uh, that I guess it's more of like the idea that activism is an individual thing or should be an individual thing um, because we need the leaders and we need the people that are out there and I think that that's a little bit different to how I would see I would see that as a role in activism and not activism itself I think that that's just innate in some of us that like you're incredibly focused on trying to make the world um, what you what you and what your community deserve yeah, so I mean, I, I mentioned that I grew up in Flemington, North Melbourne. Um, historic has a historical legacy of resisting police violence and racial profiling, like well known throughout Australia. And I, th- growing up and being raised there during the '90s, early 2000s, and so forth, um, and even till now, the way in which community and elders have responded to over policing, police violence. Um, racial profiling has been in a collaborative way has it been individualistic right so being a child of of my community that's what really grounded the work I do and why why I believe it is a collective um, practice but I always think about um, as what Nira said we all have these different roles we all have these different skills how can we collaboratively envision what justice looks for our community like for our community right mm-hmm. how can we like collaboratively envision what change transformative change looks like looks like for our community healing looks like for our community care looks like for our community right um and we, they've been doing this like for centuries like our ancestors have been doing this for centuries back home like but also here as well you know and I've seen that I've, I always say this like not growing up in suburbia has been such a privilege for me. And growing up in like a very strong East African community has been such a privilege. So for me, I do this work not because I am responding to this issue, I'm responding to this form of violence, but I do it because I love my community. Like I'm not trying to capitalize off our trauma or our hurt. I really just want us to thrive, you know? in a world that really hates us so much. It sounds like from both of your experiences that your younger years and like the way you were brought up was relatively formative in how your activism kind of manifested in your adult years. 
and you got you both do work in in youth empowerment so what for you is the importance of empowering the youth i definitely i think because yeah i i guess because i was interested in uh working with young people before like as a career like that was always what i wanted not always what i wanted to do but as soon as i finished uni that i knew that that's what i wanted to do and that's where like I felt the most joy but a lot of my like unpaid community work is with the entire community and majority of it is with women in the community um so I think for me it's like a blend of both gender and youth and um and just seeing like people on the margins really and people that like need to be brought back in or um that like need a bit more support or need a bit more love or whatever um and young people are a voice in the community that um isn't necessarily given as much of a platform or as much of a space um and uh and so are women and so that that's for me how I see it so I don't I don't necessarily see myself as focusing on on youth um it is part of a bigger strategy in my mind of like this is how we bring all of the voices from our community into the fold I think also Rima and I talk about this all the time. We don't want this like separation of young people and the, the rest of the community that I feel like the youth sector um has really driven in to our communities. Um I think that we can see that everybody has like a part to play in building the world that we want. and so we want to be able to like have the space for everyone like i just want to be that auntie that like radicalizes all the kids you know and um that doesn't mean that i've given up on the the like elder community or or our elders that just means that i can see my role um in focusing specifically on young people in terms of like that uh, like the political education and developing their understanding of like what the world could look like for them um and then with older with our older like um community members seeing my role as like supporting what it is that they want or what it is that would um uh, help them live the life that they want to live and that could look very different to young people so like that's a roundabout way to say that there's like uh an inspiration aspect to the way that we see young people's our role within young people's lives but also our role uh, uh, in the larger picture in our community yeah no I agree um my background is community grassroots organizing in like police violence racial profiling abolition and so forth like and I was 18 when I started the 17 18 when I started doing this work and at the time that I was doing this which was uh 2012 2013 and so forth there wasn't many people doing this work like it abolition wasn't mainstream as it is now I mean obviously Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander circles were talking about this work have been have an amazing historical legacy of resistance against police and the prison system and so forth but in the mainstream narrative mainstream conversation it wasn't something that we spoke about especially within like the african community as well it's interesting cuz um i was talking to munira about this there's a situation where well like trying to figure out like in this conversation i had when i was a lot younger as well about how we can get young people equipped with with the knowledge to handle um police violence right um and the thing that we sort of default to is 
rights and responsibilities, so educating young people on their rights and responsibilities. But I'm just like, if a young person is being like under section this and this and this, um, you're infringing my rights, police will arc up. Like, you, and what is like the end goal, right? Like, what do we want? Like, we want this young black man to come home safe, whole, living, like alive. And I was, you know, I, and I, I had done the whole rights and responsibilities when I was younger and I realized it didn't work. So I was like, let's reframe our thinking. Um, instead of thinking about rights and responsibilities, let's think about how we can de-escalate these situations. And where does that knowledge lie? And I think that knowledge lied within our own community. Elders have that knowledge. We, as young people, have that knowledge. Um, our parents have that knowledge, right? Like our aunties and uncles have that knowledge. So yeah, I think completely agree with Munira. Like you can't do this work if you're just doing it as a young person. You're doing it as as this sort of huge unit, right? Like this massive unit as a family, as a community. And I think as Africans, we don't see ourselves as separate from one another. We see ourselves as connected to one another, right? This is just like how we work. It's how our parents taught us or like how our families have taught us, how our community has taught us, is that what we do impacts our brothers. It impacts our sisters. It impacts our, um, our children as well. So, and it impacts our elders too. So I don't think of it as a youth empowerment. I don't think of it as young, a young person thing. I think of it as just community development. And on the topic of kind of community and, and collaboration and kind of working together, we've obviously got a huge legacy of Indigenous activism that any activism that takes place on this land is building upon, right? Um, obviously, there are so many similarities between the plight of Black African Australians and Indigenous Australians. So where does that kind of intersect for you guys in your work? And how do you kind of navigate and acknowledge, explore, pay respect to um, the legacy of Indigenous activism that we have in this country? So I worked in the Muslim community or with young Muslims for a long time. Um, and something that I noticed really, really quickly was that we were starting, uh, I think we were starting from this perspective as Muslims and, and not necessarily as Black people in this specific example, but um, there was this narrative that kept being pushed onto us as Muslims that this is happening to us in isolation to everybody else. And I think as like black Muslims, we knew that that wasn't true because we're like, wait, we have been experiencing um, like racism or discrimination before 9-11. So there was something else going on here. And I think like having a language, having um, an understanding and building that understanding for young Muslims um, around what um, uh, what historical violence exists on this land is such an important link to um, resistance and activism for not only Black Muslims, but just um, marginalised people in general. But in particular with Black Muslims, because I think there's a insidious like notion um, with with uh, Black Muslims that like um, we we will never like regardless of and we joke about this all the time, right? Like even if you take your hijab off, you're still blackity black. Like you are still not part of the mainstream, right? So it's like, no matter how you present yourself, um, if you're visibly black, especially, but um, if you're black in general, you will always be marginalized on the land that 
hates black people, right? In in a country in in a um in a place that hates black people and has hated black people from the moment white people step on this land, um, and has tried to eradicate black people. And so, I sometimes think like our black Africans, because we are so visibly black, are we a reminder to whiteness that like what they were trying to do on this land, the genocide that they were trying to enact on this land not only didn't work but actually that there's now there's now the possibility that black people could have solidarity across continents and whatever else I feel like that is such a powerful tool for us as black Muslims to use in terms of like connecting to Aboriginal resistance um, and like the radical movements and I also think like it's it's a beautiful way of like seeing ourselves as like part of a global black community there is like a lack of spaces to be able to have these conversations about what what is it what does race and racism and anti-blackness look like on this land and how do we like across different black communities I think it's I think it would be really important to start having conversations about a black identity and like strengthening that and having a lot of pride in that and not um seeing like this sounds so cheesy. I can't believe I was just about to say this. But anyway, I'm going to do it. Um, not seeing, like, our differences as, like, the most important thing, right? That that is part of us and it's part of our stories and whatever else, but also that, like, at the core of it, if, if you are a Black person, um, I love you. And if you, if you are somebody that wants good for Black people and wants Black liberation, then we can work together like wow yes I mean I've had a different experience because I think the work I did in abolition and racial profile and police violence I worked oftentimes alongside Aboriginal um elders and activists and so forth Uncle Ray Jackson was someone that I really looked up to obviously Robbie Thorpe and so forth like and there's so many other elders and activists who really provided me with mentorship and, and guidance and um care around the work I was doing it. Because I think, I mean, I can't talk about the prison industrial complex. I can't talk about racial profiling without understanding the insidious ways it has impacted, continues to impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here. Um, I grew up with an um, Aboriginal auntie um, who is Muslim, like in my building. And I didn't know until like my early twenties that she was she was Aboriginal, but she was my auntie, you know, like, and had always made me understand um, the connection to land that they have. So I've always been kind of surrounded by that. Um, has there been tension? Yes. Like there's, there's been undeniable tension. Um, and I think that's as a result, a direct result of colonization and the way in which it's tried to sort of separate us. It's the same thing I'm talking about in regards to young people and elders, but I've, I've been very lucky and fortunate to have amazing elders, Aboriginal elders, who've provided amazing support and guidance. And if I've messed up, given me the care and compassion to educate me on how I've, what I've done wrong. You know, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, definitely, it, it is definitely hugely important to understand um, the impact of racial violence we've experienced is as a result of the continuing oppression that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people experience. Yeah. The, um the beauty of learning about um, people who, while displaced, 
uh, while also displaced and while also um, uh, like removed from culture and um, you know at least attempted removed from culture and attempted removed from language something that is so incredible that I feel like I um, I I'm just in awe of with um, like Aboriginal communities is how that connection to uh, to land um, manifests and how deeply it um, how deeply it penetrates um, for Aboriginal people because I think a lot of us who have lost that um, or who've been displaced from our lands um, have lost that connection and I know like with our like my my um, with like Somali elders, you'll hear them often be like, oh, nothing feels like the air in Somalia. Nothing, you know, feels like the sand in our beaches. Nothing, you know, like they'll go to a beach here and be like, oh, this is nothing like the beach on this, in this one town where they grew up. And I've always just like rolled my eyes at that and be like, you know, um, it's like their, their heart is stuck somewhere else. But through um, listening to Aboriginal people talk about their connection to land, it helped. It has helped me as a kid who has never had um, any sort of like beyond um, a very superficial idea of home. It has helped me like understand um, where my elders are coming from and what their connection to their land was and how important that is and how important it is to preserve our languages and preserve our cultures and. Um, and I think that that's just such an incredible gift um, from Aboriginal communities. And, you know, obviously um, no one is doing it for us, but I think it's an incredible gift for us to be able to be like, oh, shit, this is how deeply people um, like other Black people feel about their land and feel about their language and feel about who they are. And that's a hard thing for us to access right now, but that isn't, that means that like, that doesn't mean that it's going to be hard to access forever and that this is also something that, you know, I, I, um, that I want our community to feel even while displaced, even while, you know, on the other side of the world. It's so true that what you're saying, I think if we look to Indigenous people in Australia for anything, it's like the cultural preservation and the cultural pride that they practice is so, no or matter the strife, I think matter the kind of extent of displacement your people are, are going through there's no reason to to lose you know the cultural pride that you have um if anything it makes it easier to deal with um having to live in a country that's majority white and male dominated um and still has hugely islamophobic views hugely racist views um as much as you have both found pockets of joy and safety and happiness how have you navigated and kind of persevered through the challenges that present themselves working in such a white dominated country? Wow. I want to focus primarily on joy and creating joy because I feel like there's something very black about that, about just like being really joyful, really inwardly focused on our communities and our families and how we support each other and like these like rituals of like community and love and, and joy and creating joy together that is our survival like I've never come across a black community that isn't centered on joyful living you know and like just being in celebration with each other all the time and stuff and I think 
I've come to really appreciate how powerful that is when you think about what we've collectively been through <laughs> historically and currently and whatever else. Like, it's just amazing to think that, like, we still have imagination, we still have hope, we still have, like, ability to laugh with each other and at at each other and at ourselves. There's something incredibly beautiful about that and only, and something that I've only come to appreciate um, while working with young people, especially working with young Black kids. Like, a lot of what I was doing was, like, political education for young people and it's a very serious, like, very serious conversations. But young black kids will find the humor in absolutely everything. And while that goes against everything that schooling teaches and everything that like, you know, the white systems um, teaching them or even expect of them, um, it's like a direct resistance to all of that. And I just love that. Um, And I think that that all of that allows you to survive in, in whiteness. I think having black friends is critical. (laughs) like you cannot do anything in white in like a white majority world without black friends and without like nurturing those black friendships and without having like a place to go you know like a safe space to like landing um I also think like surviving whiteness means that like you create um small moments with your with yourself or with your community or with your family that like allows you to experience fully what it means to be human outside of how white people see you um so I think you survive whiteness by being your blackest self (laughs) in all the ways and you really lean into what you love about your community and um, enjoy it and just be part of a community and yeah don't try to do what I want you know you're like Mira said everything I wanted to say. <laughs> Boy, that's right. And like, yeah, I think faith, my faith deeply. There was this quote we came across talking about this, how Islam is synonymous with justice. And I was like, that makes so much sense. Why I am who I am and why my parents raised me to be this person who is like so principled, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, my my spirituality deeply helps me overcome it. Like, I think during the hard lockdown, I was like, it was so funny because, um, not funny, it's sad. Um, the work I was doing in abolition and organizing grassroots organizing really burnt me out and really broke me. Um, and broke me not from community, but from the non-for-profit industrial complex, from the non-for-profit space. Because I just saw these non-for-profits capitalizing off our trauma and capitalizing off our harm. And I was just there like, trying to protect my community at the best I can and I just couldn't like my body was deteriorating my health was deteriorating I was like my health was like just crashing like my father and my mom would always tell me you can't help other people if you're not helping yourself first if you're not healthy and you're not whole and I feel like this is a very deeply Islamic thing like if you're not connecting with yourself and you know the five daily prayers we do is that time for us to reflect right to really like reflect on what we've done on the, on the in that day and whether it was done with care and compassion and intention, right? But I realized in the hard lockdown though, what really grounded me was, as Munira said, joy, but also love, my spirituality, my Islamic faith, like genuinely grounded me, my family, my community, just seeing our community members checking on each other, you know, like, the welfare state was supposed to like these organizations were supposed to 
do those welfare checks, right? But it was us who were checking on each other. And we were always doing this. This practice has been existing since us migrating here, but since also back home as well. It was just like such a wholesome, I mean, it was a shitty moment, the shitty, yeah. the, lack, the sort of care that we had for one another was like very beautiful. Yeah. And I think, mm. I think it's that, that's what allowed me to survive for, dec- for a decade doing this work. To add something about the faith, the aspect of faith, because um, while it is central to my understanding of like justice and, and why I do all this work, I think it's sometimes like it's not front of mind to talk about because it is so embedded within, especially within a Black Muslim perspective, right? That that, that is a huge part of how we see the world. And I think um, in terms of like surviving white supremacy, surviving um, patriarchal uh, society without, I don't know how we would survive um, without faith. And this is faith generally, right? As black people Um, and not necessarily like organized religion or whatever else, but just faith in general. But for me in particular, like having Islam as a compass, as like the way that I want to be in the, the, um, that I feel like, we all deeply want, you know, and we're all deeply craving. Yeah. Um, and having like that, like uh, being able to zoom out and see that this is just um, one part of our existence, right? That it isn't all of it. And that um, whatever happens on this earth, um, whatever happens in this lifetime, wow, I'm going to sound so um, intense for anybody who's not Muslim. But if you're Muslim, <laughs> you know what I mean. Whatever happens in this lifetime, it's just, yeah, and that it doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't follow you anywhere else. So I feel like there's, um, you know, you want to do the best that you can while, um, you know, living your life and um, you want to do the best for others because it means that you um, are able to see yourself as like part of that community because, you know, that um, famous Islamic hadith about, we're all one body and if one part of the mm. body is, um, is hurting the other parts are hurting I think that like a lot of us really just want to um, be good for our communities and be like useful and support our community because we do understand and believe that you can't just get ahead on your own so yeah alongside joy like I think definitely faith is a massive thing and um, being able to like uh, look beyond your own existence and see yourself as part of like a community whether that's a human community whether that's a Muslim community whatever um, being able to connect in and see that you cannot individually win there's no individual winning As much as non-academic education is key to fighting the good fight, we still live in a world where people's values are equated to their academic qualifications. As problematic as it is, getting a good education, you know, going to a good school, getting a good degree, is often the only way that people from the diaspora's voices are afforded the respect and attention they deserve. And what makes matters worse is education is still the poster child for racism, elitism, classism, all of it. 
Someone who's no doubt had tons of experience with all the isms is Hope Oloye, who's very much giving black excellence, not just because she's an Oxford graduate, but because she founded Thinking Black, an organization for African and Caribbean kids, encouraging them and empowering them to secure degrees and dismantle the system from inside out. I'm Hope Lawyer. I am the director of Thinking Black, um, an organisation that works with young black people to run educational programmes. And I'm also a PhD student at UCL now, um, studying computational neuroscience. So your activism is obviously more education based um, and yeah, based in youth empowerment and encouraging youth to kind of go ahead with their education. So what led you to found Thinking Black and go down that activist route? Yeah, I think it was um, formed in response to how white Oxford was and kind of more actually their like inability to do anything about it or even acknowledge it as an issue. I think that really infuriated me. And I was in, um, I was like the president of my my college at Oxford, um, the undergrads. And yeah, just being in that meeting and them saying, we just don't have a problem or we're doing all this other access stuff. And it was like, but look around, everyone's white. Like, I just don't, and people being like, oh my God, I never realized because they just don't expect anything else. I think that was sort of the launching pad um, but then it, it evolved past that to sort of being like, how can we um, explore ways of tackling like educational inequality at an earlier stage? Um, and the fact that we don't see ourselves in our syllabuses and um, we don't reward black thought and things like that. So I think, yeah. As someone who did do a bit of work for Thinking Black back in the day, I can say that the work that you guys are doing is really, really amazing. Um, It was a great thing to be a part of and it's really inspiring. So I guess from that question, I mean, you kind of touched on it earlier, but more broadly, what for you is the importance of promoting education among Black youth? Yeah, I think it ultimately diversifies the voices that we then hear from um because yeah like academic papers influence policy and things like that but also you know sadly in the UK predominantly the most of the people that are in um government that work in media come from Oxbridge so if everybody at Oxbridge looks a certain way, then we're having media portrayals by people who are all white and often men, and then also have um, people in power, again, who are legislating for themselves, even if they don't mean badly, which they, I think they, most, they often do. <laughs> um, they're just limited by their experiences. And I think that, um, I think that that's... Um, why it felt really important to me because it's just really irritating to hear certain people be like just knowing that they're going to go on and like rule the world kind of thing but not caring at all about the people that they're meant to be serving it's such a what you just said is such a sad reality knowing that kind of being aware of that sad reality how do you reconcile your activism which is kind of specifically with thinking black based in promoting education 
um, at Oxford and the reality that many educational institutions like Oxford um, still perpetuate, you know, racism, elitism, classism, all the other isms <laughs> that there are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a good question because it really does bother me. Um, and I think that, I think one is that we try to equip students with like the confidence to ask questions and to probe systems and to disagree with things so we're not trying to say like okay you know learn all this material and then like um, memorize it and just know it by heart and, and just try and replicate it. it's like okay how can we like critique for non or whatever like you know everyone is fallible and I think that then hopefully when they get to these other institutions they feel a bit more confident in being like in talking up and calling out um things to do with like how um what, what kind of voices are on their um reading list they could maybe be like well actually i've read this person and i think it's really relevant here you know um and sort of probe and question things and hopefully shift towards change and also lots of our students don't go to, to choose not to go to Oxbridge. Like one spoke to me and said that um, she just didn't feel like she would be at home there. She didn't like what um, the, the institutions had done in the past and what they continue to perpetuate. And they really are invested in their emotional um, development and like well-being and happiness and I was like that's great I really support like of course that's amazing and there are other universities like maybe the University of Birmingham that has like a black studies program or SOAS as well that's super diverse and has like lots of different courses and I think that um yeah and if other students were to decide that they weren't to go to university either I still think there's value in like um being aware of writers who are um that look like you and come from similar experiences to you and um, knowing that your opinion on them is like valid and interesting and worthy of um, celebration. That's so nice. And it's so kind of incredible to hear that you've you've basically empowered, it sounds like from what you were saying, you've empowered them to kind of have that critical thinking to, to see that going to Oxford isn't necessarily the Holy Grail. Um, which isn't what we were taught to believe growing up. You don't decline an an offer from Oxford, you know what I mean? Especially as a black student. So it's incredible that you've empowered them to be able to be like, actually, I don't want to go there. So do you think then, um, do you think that substantive change can be made from within the system and within these institutions? Or do you think that they need to be circumvented entirely and kind of dismantled from the outside and rebuilt by for us by us basically I think ultimately we do need to kind of dismantle structures and build our own but I think that being able to go inside of them see how they work and um then sort of build sort of in response counter it and then also imagine like what else can exist I think would be useful too um, I remember being on this panel and some a guy sort of was like, I went to Cambridge and I hated it so much. And I don't think that anyone should be promoting um, people of colour, people from like working class backgrounds going to those kinds of institutions because it's like they're horrible in all these ways. I was like, yeah, that's true. But um, I don't know if the answer is like all of us ignoring it because they still have so much power. Um, and so I think being able to be at the table to know how to like 
break down the table is important so I think that's kind of the way I see it that like okay let's um because of course we we teach things that are not like for thinking black we teach things that are not on a main curriculums but it's but we also look at books and articles and things which is quite like a traditional way of approaching academia um so I think that yeah I think that we use those tools a bit as much as we can but I think it ultimately is limited because it, the system just um it wants to exist as it is it's not by accident I don't think um so yeah it would be nice to try and break it down we'll see though <laughs> <laughs> one of this professor I love says something like for for a revolution we need a shift in consciousness and so it's like we can't just like go break everything down and then leave this vacuum in terms of thought because we'll just replicate other things and like if you have the same sort of capitalist system but you have lots of black women there it's still going to be horrible it, it, you need to like try and figure out a new way of going about it I think first yeah it's so true it's like that kind of concept of decolonizing your mind and acknowledging that just because we're black doesn't mean that we don't also need to decolonize our mind or decapitalize our mind or de whatever our mind. Um, how do you think that, you know, on the topic of like decolonizing your mind and things like that, that your activism and thinking black in particular has um, adopted maybe an untraditional kind of way of, of educating or, or engaging with youth that does serve to decolonize minds? Yeah. I think that we try and say at the start of our programs, like, feel free to disagree with us. Um, please do almost. And like, this isn't like gospel. I think that in one in one way is, um, is pretty different just because I think otherwise learning can be quite dogmatic, especially when you've got an exam attached to the end and then all these things that may or may not happen in your life are determined, sorry, like your life outcomes are determined by your exams, which um, then your grades on those exams are determined by um, your how well you sort of like inhaled all the material. I think it, that, yeah, you end up being a bit rigid sometimes when you learn or sort of it's, it's not delivered in like a let's discuss it what's wrong with this kind of thing so I think that and then also having so much discussion in the center of our um, courses as well um, is helps to make it quite different because along the way we teach and then we're like okay what do you think constantly so it goes hand in hand um, and then I think also like the types of people that we employ who are like young black students um, or like graduates and stuff like that too, who all have like interesting opinions on the subject matter as well. I think then it can interact in a really nice way. And you've got like a nice little network, intergenerational network of um, black people exploring topics. Um, and maybe hopefully then we can kind of like get rid of the sort of hierarchical structure of a classroom where like your teacher is like 30 years older than you and from somewhere completely different and doesn't understand your what your home might look like. Do you feel like um, through your activism it's kind of restored your hope in kind of like the future of the diaspora in the UK maybe or just the future of, of the world generally speaking? Yeah, in some ways, for sure. I think, like, <laughs> I think thinking that has, like, lifted me out of, like, bad periods of mental health. Just being able to sort of see um, young Black people engaging in con with content and, um, and like, like you were saying, sort of, like, 
coming up with things that I wouldn't have thought of. Um, yeah, so that's really encouraging. And it's like, there's lots of life there and like joy and stuff. So that's really nice and beautiful. But at the same time, I think it's really irritating how kind of like, how much red tape there is in terms of like access to sustainable funding. Um, and then once you do secure funding, like the goals of the funding body versus what you have, and then sort of like trying to navigate between the two. And I think often like, you know, some well I don't know it feels like there's a tension between like becoming bigger and more commercial and then like all like smaller and more radical um but then you need to be able to pay people and you need to be able to like reach lots of students as well and you yeah so I think I don't know it's restored my faith in or at least I'm rejuvenated by the black people that are involved and then sometimes quite disappointed by the the, the others yeah one thing that um you have in common with actually most of the guests that i've interviewed from this podcast is that everyone always refers back to like black joy as something that gets them through the hard times like the musicians i spoke to the storytellers i spoke to the activists i spoke to all of them have named joy black joy as something that um that like helps them going and because you're the last guest of the podcast I think it's really really nice that that theme has appeared in every single conversation I've had like it's very heartwarming <laughs> going back to you know all of the challenges that you probably have to face like even just from a um operational point of view how do you overcome the challenges that present themselves working in a white dominated country but also in affiliation with such a historically white university <laughs> it's hard I think um, like leaning on collaborators and um, people who work for thinking black um yeah in stressful moments kind of is how I get through but yes yeah, it's, it's just not easy and it feels like it, it feels almost intentionally not easy do you know what I mean and I think often about how like in the 80s there were so many groups around the UK and London that um, did educational activism for black people um, that don't exist now and it's like why and I guess because it's so hard to be able to sustain it and then you end up being like it's based on one person's work and then of course that's not sustainable at all you know because everything kind of dies with them um, but yeah, I think also, yeah, the knowledge that other people have done this kind of helps. And yeah, just just people around me, I think, really helps. And, and occasionally as well, there are really amazing allies who are, they have all the power, they have keys to the money, um, and then they are like friendly and they care. There aren't like loads and loads, but the ones that do are so restorative as well, because it's like you don't have to fight so much with them and then they can advocate for you too um but yeah this is it's the support of community the road always leads back to community <laughs> do you feel like the reality that the advocacy of a white person will most likely kind of push your cause forward like how do you kind of grapple with that reality when going about your activism which is obviously like based in empowering specifically black people yeah I don't know it is it is hard to rely on um to to rely on white people I think as well that like 
the types of people that are really like that really really care and that really really ride for you because they're so rare it's almost scary because you're like you don't want to hitch all your like um everything on this on these like handful of people you know um so I think that's quite hard and then I think also like retaining um like not allowing them to sort of take over in any way um so some people are good and then like you do what you want to do but then also um things that can be packaged as as advice can sort of like it's it's easy for it to gain too much credence I think if that makes sense um yeah so it, I mean it's a tough it's a tough one to grapple with but I think if the balance is right such that they are kind of an advisor at a distance or an advocate at a distance that don't have much of like an in-house role in the organization but just sort of like open doors where you then go and represent yourself um I think is is the way is the right balance but yes it's not easy yeah it doesn't sound easy but it sounds like activism to be good activism doesn't need to be devoid of allyship it sounds like you're saying right yeah but I think that um I don't know I just think people need to be better allies in general as well so I think that lots of people think that they're being like amazing allies but are treating the black people they work with so much worse than they're treating the white people they work with or um or even yeah like within the community like a gender thing as well and I think that um that's really disappointing as well what would you say if you had to give advice to any young folks trying I mean you're ridiculously young like to have accomplished everything that you have like let me just put that out there for the listeners like hope is not like a grown ass woman like she's in her 20s um So what advice would you give, I guess more so to your contemporaries, because we're basically age mates, which is kind of scary, but what advice would you give to your age mates um, who would like to kind of get involved in any form of activism, but don't really know where to start? Yeah, I feel like um, having confidence in your ideas and then like tapping into whoever is around you. So I think in those really early days like having conversations with friends who were like that's a great idea that just helped um or would say that part isn't good that's not gonna work <laughs> um go back to the other thing it really helps so I think having the confidence to at least talk about it start writing it down is um a great way to start and then starting with like the smallest achievable goal kind of thing so like start with with us we started with like a tiny program and and then we slowly built added lectures and added modules and add and you know all of that stuff so I think getting that win for something that is smaller a smaller sort of realization of ideas can be really encouraging nobody Said I do as I want, I do as I like, and I watch face and no fear, nobody. Racism, music, storytelling and activism. The experiences of the African diaspora in Australia and the UK is varied and multifaceted, but if it has to be broken down into anything, I think this is a good place to start. I originally set out to make this series about all the BS that people from the diaspora have to deal with. What I realised along the way, though, is that that's not what this should be about. It should be about showcasing the joy, the talent, the creativity and just sheer power that exists across and within the diaspora. So thank you to my guests for being that joy and talent. 
Thank you to Race Matters and FBI for letting me do my thing. And most of all, thank you to all of you for riding with me. It's been real. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.